World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hi everyone, my name is Neil Munchie and I'm the West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. Welcome to this special Africa in Focus webinar brought to you by the African Leadership Center uh, and part of the world, we got this essay and podcast series from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Uh, the series aims to explore the impacts of COVID-19 from a variety of global perspectives and disciplines. In today's discussion, we're going to hear from a panel of leading scholars about the ways in which this pandemic is shaping Africa. Uh, I wanted to give a quick introduction to the African Leadership Center, uh, to which all of today's panelists are linked. The center is a research and educational trust, which was established in June 2010 as a joint initiative between King's College London and the University of Nairobi. It is co-located in London and Nairobi, with today's panel joining us from both cities. The ALC trains, mentors, and builds a community of young African leaders and scholars who produce cutting-edge knowledge for peace, security, and development in Africa. It was it has trained over 150 young Africans who are now working in academic institutions, policy research, and making institutions, regional organizations, and civil society organizations across Africa. Uh, a final explanation on today's format. We're going to hear from each of our panelists for five minutes uh, on a topic related to Africa and this pandemic. And after those five-minute int introductions, we'll move to an open panel discussion. And we'll finish off with a live Q&A from the audience. Uh, some of those questions have been submitted in advance, but uh, you will be able to submit questions live during the Q&A. Uh, so just to introduce our panelists, we've got Dr. Wale Ismail, who is a lecturer in Leadership, Peace, and Development at the ALC, School of Global Affairs, King's College. Uh, his current research interests include youth leadership and social change processes in developing countries and regional peace, security, and development in Africa. We've got Professor Funmi Olonisakin, who's a professor of security, leadership, and development at the ALC. Her current research interest uh, is on the future of peace and transformations in leadership and peace building. She is principal investigator on a research project titled Future Peace Society and the State in Africa, supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And finally, we have Dr. Moses Tofa, who is a postdoctoral fellow in peace, security, and development with the ALC in Nairobi. He anchors the ALC's research agenda on peace society in the state in Africa. He also anchors the delivery of the peace, security, and development module at the University of Nairobi's Institute for Development Studies. His current research focuses on elections in Africa and African agency in international relations. And I will pass it along to Wale, who's going to get us started now. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for the, for the introduction. Um, I just want to make uh, five key points. As of yesterday, Africa had recorded nearly 196,000 confirmed cases of COVID with about 5,300 deaths and about 86,000 recoveries, official data. On the back of this, the World Health Organization projects that Africa would not experience exponential increase or growth in COVID cases, that rather the continent would have long-drawn outbreaks that would pose challenges to the healthcare system. Um, the WHO also projects that over the course of COVID, Africa might have between 83 to 190,000 deaths and about 20, between 29 and 44 million confirmed COVID cases. That is what the data says. But from our own reading, analysis, and picking up of anecdotal cases and evidence in Africa, we think this data may not be telling the whole story. And we say this for a variety of reasons. One, we strongly believe or suspect that COVID cases in Africa is accelerating and is shifting from 
linear linear growth to exponential growth and i'll give you an instance to buttress this um, the average doubling time in africa uh, before the month of may was typically up to 20 days but since the month of may covid cases have been doubling at a reduced period of time typically between 10 to 14 days in some countries so take for example uh for for africa as at 18th of may the continent only had 88,000 cases of covid whilst at yesterday it had doubled that is nearly you know just about 16 17 days is doubled you take some country like nigeria over the course of one month between the 8th of may nigeria had just 4000 cases 4100 cases of covid but as at yesterday nigeria case was already 13000 as at today over 13000 cases so in over a month you can see the rate of doubling second uh, and it's not just us that you know think this uh, if you look at the report of king's uh, uh, global health institute about a month when they did a one month assessment of covid in africa they did point out that africa needed to be watched very 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 closely that africa was going to be at a very or it's already at a tipping point in terms of covid outbreak and that close monitoring need to uh, uh, need to take place the second reason why we believe the data may not be telling the whole story is that cases are being underdiagnosed in Africa due to testing issues. On the average, South Africa and the continent had the highest testing rate of 15.03 persons per thousand. The biggest country on the continent, Nigeria, with 200 million population, is only able or has only able to test 0.36 persons per thousand. So you can see variation in testing capacity, but you only know COVID to the extent that you test. The limited testing capacity of many African countries because of technical issues, because of financial costs, is limiting the full disclosure of COVID in Africa. Third, if there is a politics of COVID data reporting in Africa, we, we are picking up evidence, anecdotal evidence that suggests that government are massaging or closely controlling our COVID-related data is being handled largely because they want to avoid stigma of being countries that have been uh, devastated by COVID and also prevent long-term damage to the economy, especially the uh, disruption to the flow of uh, foreign direct investment. The fourth reason why we feel the data is not telling the whole story is there are a lot of young people in Africa. The median age is typically between 18 to 20 years. So in ghana for example 91 percent of those tested for covid were young people that were asymptomatic so a lot of the young population in africa that might be covid carriers are asymptomatic of course there is a debate the who yesterday updated its guidance saying that there is little evidence that asymptomatic carriers can transmit covid but the reality in africa is that many more young people who have COVID are symptomatic and they may be transmitting. Finally, is the reality of cultural issues related to stigma in society. Uh, due to previous experiences of pandemics like Ebola, like HIV AIDS, people are refusing to, to test. People are even denying the existence of COVID, largely because of this stigma and what it means in community. So these are the anecdotal reasons where we feel the data out there may not be telling the whole story. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Great. And uh, Funmi, I think you're going to pick it up from there. I think you're muted. Can you hear me? Thank you. I, I, I think. Um, we now need to really look at the question uh, of leadership. Uh, how successful have African states been when it comes to mobilizing their societies uh, to respond uh, effectively uh, to mitigate uh, the, the impact of uh, COVID-19? Uh, and what we are realizing, what is becoming evident, again, 
you can say this is anecdotal because we're still trying to gather that data from uh, across um, a number of key countries. But it's evidence that we're seeing leadership emergence from outside of the state. And the big factor then, if we're seeing leadership uh, emerge outside of the state in response to, to, uh, to, to COVID, uh, the key issue is the extent to which governments, those who are managing uh, the state, uh, if you like, uh, the, the infrastructure of, of leadership, the extent to which they would actually converge and align with this new emergence that we're seeing. Uh, there has been evidence before that uh, leadership was available uh, in abundance outside of the state, but states uh, had been, it's been such that states did not necessarily look to those places uh, for innovation. COVID has brought all of that out. Secondly, um, putting that argument on the table, let me talk a little bit about the context. We have a context in which before now, uh, it was difficult to mobilize collectively uh, because of the huge inequalities in society. But what we thought initially at the start of COVID-19 uh, was that everyone was impacted, was you know, affected in the same way. Even in this country and in the US across it, we've seen that uh, everyone isn't affected in the same way. Certain people are more vulnerable to COVID and we've lost uh, more lives in the um, uh, you know, in the black community than any other place. People of color have, you know, uh, have experienced it in a, in a sharp, in a sharply unequal way. But therefore, when you look at that context uh, on the African continent, there are two things to take into account. If we are assuming that everyone is affected the same way, it isn't so because of the inequalities that exist. We can't even say these are all people of color. You're talking about largely, um, you know, uh, black and colored communities across the continent. So the assumption, though, that we had a leadership infrastructure that would respond to balance the experiences for all citizens, that's gone out the window. We do not have that kind of infrastructure because uh, the very hardware, as I've described elsewhere, which is the site of management of the state, had always had a poor relationship with the rest of society. So that software element of leadership was far removed. And we've now seen it with, uh, with COVID. We've seen it in two ways. One of the ways in which we've seen it is that you have middle-class uh, elite, upper-class elite, able to abide by the regulations. They can hunker down and stay home and isolate themselves from any form of danger. But we're asking the rest of the population to do exactly the same. So low class, working class people who, unlike this country where people have salaries, do not have any salary to speak of, have to eke out a living on the streets, cannot therefore, uh, you know, isolate. But at the same time, we're asking them uh, to socially distance themselves in particular spaces. They live in crowded places. So anyone, any African that understands this, that more than half of the continent in particular ways lives in crowded urban areas. And these young people too. Wally's point about those young people might be asymptomatic carriers. Therefore, means the people who are on the streets on a day-to-day -day basis are exactly these people. This raises questions about the ability of the state to respond to this. But let me move on to my penultimate point. Therefore, when I talked about leadership emerging from outside of the state, I was referring to the innovations that are occurring because the real owners of Africa had to step up to the plate. And those real owners of Africa are these kinds of people. Networks of young people who mobilize to respond to the challenges around them, whether it is food um, or whether it's particular forms of communication just to keep the place running. We've seen other kinds of people step up in other countries. But you've also seen the ways in which young researchers have come up with innovations in engineering, uh, some places respirators, some places all manner of hand sanitizing, different kinds of masks and so on. That kind of innovation, you hope that governments will align themselves with it, and they have. Having said that, 
I think the exceptions for those states, excuse some of those exceptions we've seen in Senegal, we've seen in South Africa itself in various ways, we've seen in Rwanda, we've talked about Uganda. Um, you know, the jury is out on many of these, but I'm not saying not that all governments are the same. I'm not saying all governments are the same, but we have seen the majority of our Africans um, on the margins of the state respond. And I call them the real loners of the continent because they are affected by this and they have responded in large numbers and across the board. The diaspora. So many of us have seen how diaspora remittances have begun to fill the gaps for, you know, for, for many Africans that COVID is having a biting effect on. So, so in that sense, let me make uh, my last set of points. If this is the case, what does this say about that leadership infrastructure? Because ultimately, we have to see more convergence between the managers of the state and the kinds of innovations that are being led outside of the state. Where you do not see that convergence, it spells doom. Uh, so peace and stability in Africa depends on the degree to which African leaders uh, across the board begin to align with those that have shown the innovations to lead and they're actually providing the way forward, both in response to COVID, but in response to other socioeconomic factors. And that convergence um, may not happen. Why? Because even where they should converge, where should you say convergence that gives us a kind of leadership infrastructure that we need? Security, I mean physical security, not uh, just human security now. Reproduction of the state. In reproducing the state, elections are a big part of it, but they're not the full story. And what happens in those areas will tell us a lot about where uh, Africa is going, I think. Let me leave it at that. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, uh, Funmi and Moses. I think you'll pick it up there. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Neil. Uh I will talk about uh, three things centering on elections in Africa. Maybe I'll start with the first point is really putting the context of the conduct of elections in Africa. Uh, the common pattern in Africa is that, except of, of course with the exception of few countries such as South Africa, is that elections produce disputed outcomes. And if you look at the alleged irregularities across Africa, they are largely similar. And it is often that the years before the conduct of elections are characterized by contestations over the need to level the electoral playing field. And so many years after elections are characterized by contestations over the legitimacy and of the process and outcome of elections in the continent. And we've seen ruling parties and opposition parties routinely engaging in zero-sum politics where they look at each other as an existential threat and to exterminate each other. Uh, so in this context, elections become a matter of life and death. The stakes are so high. The cost of losing an election are so high. But despite these challenges, we have also seen quite a number of democratic gains, uh, which includes you know, opening up of democratic space to, for people to enjoy some democratic freedoms. We've seen the enactment of democratic institutions. We've seen that in Zimbabwe. We've seen that in, in Kenya. We have seen the reforming of institutions uh, in the continent. Here in Kenya, we have seen the, the courts annulling the results of the presidential election. We have seen that also in Malawi. And in Malawi, they have appointed a new chair of the electoral body. We have seen the opening of the media space. We have seen the rise of social movements uh, and the work of the civil society. So these are the gains that we have made over the years. But the question is now with the arrival of COVID-19, are we going to be able to take these democratic gains forward or are these gains going to be eroded? This takes me to my second question. Now, what does COVID-19 mean for the future of elections in Africa? In order to answer that question, I think it is important to look at two factors. Number one, we need to look at the responses which have been made by governments. 
and what does those responses mean for elections? But if you look at those responses, we have seen, as Fumi said, so um, that the areas of divergence are more than the areas of convergence. And one of the primary reasons for this is the weaponization of COVID-19, which has been characterized by the use of law, the use of state institutions to repress democratic freedoms and particularly to weaken or even eliminate opposition party politics. We have seen that in Cameroon, we have seen that in Zimbabwe, we have seen that in quite a number of African countries. We have seen arbitrary arrests, detentions, abductions, and forced appearances. All these responses pose an existential threat to the credibility of elections in Africa. Then number two, we have to look at the challenges which the pandemic itself poses to the conduct of elections in Africa. So we have seen a the, the advent of the pandemic is characterized with restrictions, for example, on public gatherings, which makes this difficult for people to conduct large-scale um, political rallies to mobilize um, supporters. This is very difficult, especially in contexts where communication technology is very limited. Candidates have to rely on online platforms of mobilization. Then there is also need for increased new resources. The cost of elections has increased because you need now additional resources, for example, to make sure that there's sufficient um, personal protection uh, equipment to, to make sure that you enforce the regulations, to make sure that polling stations are cleaned, to make sure that you enforce social distancing measures and all that. So there is need for more resources. And this is against the background of uh, the impact of the COVID pandemic on the economies of Africa. You, this also, we've seen that it is also difficult now for international observers to observe the elections. The case of Burundi, where international observers were required to be quarantined for 14 days, and then this presented, prevented the observation of elections by international observers. And of course, we also do not have the, the infrastructure to support postal and online voting. So most countries rely on in-person elections. And uh, lastly, we have uh, issues to do with logistics and preparations of elections being you know, made difficult because of the pand pandemic. Issues of reg voter, voter registration. Then what has been the case? So we have seen a number of a few African countries uh, conducting elections, Guinea, Cameroon, Mali, Benin, Burundi. Uh, in the context of COVID-19. And we have seen that these elections have also produced disputed outcomes. The voter turnout was generally low. Uh, in Benin, there were restrictions in terms of public gatherings. So candidates relied primarily on online um, mobilization of voters. In Burundi, we have seen, of course, large political gatherings were allowed. Movement was not restricted. But again, the outcome has been contested by the opposition. We have seen countries which have postponed elections like Ethiopia, uh, Malawi will conduct its uh, runoff election uh, in June, in 23rd of June this year. Going now to my last point. My last point is now what is it that we need, what part do we need to take for Africa if we are to make sure that we conduct our elections in a manner which is credible. There are many uh, issues to look at, but I'm going to focus on two. First thing, I think that we might need to consider moving away from the winner-takes-all uh, political system, uh, uh, electoral system to the proportional representation because of the character, because of the um, polarization and the mentalities which come with that uh, system. Number two, Fumi talked about trust. We need to build trust and to promote the participation uh, of people in economic and political spaces. Uh, people have been excluded for a long time from political and economic participation. So we need to create space for meaningful conversations, meaning, uh, demands and contestations between the state and society about what people want. 
and these are legitimate demands which we need to make sure that we nurture them. I, I, I read the Human Development Reports of, of 1993. There is something so incisive in that report. That report says that people have an irresistible age to participate, but um, this age comes with dangers and opportunities depending on how the systems are going to respond. If the system responds in a manner which is arbitrary, uh, societies will take a wrong path. But if the system responds in a manner which is positive, societies will take a, a, a constructive path. And if you look at it, you realize that we took a wrong path by brutalizing, by repressing the irresistible edge to budget. And as we stand now, we are standing again at that place where we have to make another choice to take a path, not the path we took when we get in, gained independence of repressing the edge to participate, but the path of nurturing the edge to participate. Because of that repression, we have lost so much innovation and agents which could have transformed this continent in very wonderful ways. I will leave it at that. Great, Moses, thank you so much for that. Um, I want to, you know, I want to go back, um, circle back to some points that Wale and Funmi uh, made, but, you know, given uh, we just had news yesterday, um, I wonder, you know, with the death of the outgoing president, you touched on how they held um, mass public gatherings during the pandemic. They held the election. I wonder what you think the implications for democracy in Burundi are, given the news of the death of the outgoing president and the fact that we're in the midst of this pandemic. Sorry, Neil, come again. I, I wonder if you, can, if you can sort of explore the implications for democracy in Burundi, given the death of the outgoing president yesterday, the announcement of it in any case. Uh, you know, given we're in the midst of this uh, pandemic at the same time. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the implications will largely depend on, uh, I think, on how the opposition is going to respond to the outcome and how um, also the society is going to respond to the outcome. Uh, now, the opposition has contested the outcome of that election. Um, which uh, and the court has actually um, validated the results, the outcome. So what is important in terms of the implications for democracy is whether the opposition uh, believes that the outcome was legitimate or was not legitimate. Because legitimacy uh, is derived from, from the elections. And if people do not trust the process which brought a government into power, then uh, the legitimacy is questioned. And once the procedural legitimacy of a political authority is questioned, then that will have implications even on the performance legitimacy of that particular um, party. So if the opposition is going to say, we accept this re these results, uh, even if we have reservations, then the, uh, the, the process for democracy will be deepened. But if the opposition continue to condense the outcome, then you will realize that there will be more and more contestations and that will undermine the performance legitimacy of the political authority. Thank you. Could I add uh, to that, uh, which is to stretch it a bit? Uh, I think it's going to have implication, not just for democratic governance, but also the stability of Burundi, but also uh, the Great Lakes region. Uh, in the last few years, the last five years, there has been quite serious tension between Burundi and Rwanda, with even the threat of uh, armed conflict. Um, but of course, they were engaging proxy proxy wars through support for uh, opposition groups or armed militias that are fighting against respective government. So the first thing it does is it removes internally in Burundi. It removes the cloud. There was a cloud about what was going to be the role of late president in Kiruziza, his exact role after stepping up, you know, stepping down from power. There, were, there, there is a gray area constitutionally in Burundi in respect of that. 
That is one. So it's going to remove that cloud. Secondly, is that what you find is they are lingering key questions from the peace process. Uh, the peace process was manipulated by former President Nkuruziza in order to extend his stay in office to be able to qualify. And so the last time he spent in office was full of contestations over the terms of the Arusha peace process. Now, questions are going to come back again about that. Typically, thought is that in Africa, whenever and I, you know, strong men exit the scene, we've seen it times without number. It shakes the system. There is usually a systemic shift of balance of power, balance of influence, balance of forces between the ruling party. More often than not, the ruling party are often embodied by the strong man. Once the strong man exits the scene, it tends to plunge on average many African countries to, on the average, a decade of instability. We've seen it in Burkina Faso. We've seen it in Cote d'Ivoire. We've seen it in Egypt. We've seen it in Tunisia. We've seen it in several countries. When you have a leader who has been in power for 15, 20, 20, 30, you know, 30 years or more, whenever they exit the scene, it plunges the country into here of uncertainty, new forces begin to juggle or struggle for political power and the rest. Uh, so there is going to be that. The final one is the regional dimensions of this. Inclusiva was, was a key you know, actor in issues of peace and security in the Great Lakes region. His exit you know, is a veteran of all the conflict that has happened in that region. His exit is going to, sh it's going to rejig the regional balance of of power, the regional security dynamics in ways that no one can predict at the moment. We will have to see how this evolve over the coming three to six months. I'll leave it at that. Can I add one sentence to that, Neil? I, I think it's, you know, in the last 24 hours or so, I mean, it's since that news uh, of uh, the late president's uh, passing, uh, late President of Burundi's passing. There have been several questions. Oh, did he die from COVID-19? Oh, did he die from some extra, you know, some funny, was he killed? And was he killed had two dimensions to it. Uh, one which was physical, the other one which is metaphysical. I think if there's a consensus in the end that this death was due to COVID-19, this itself might bring society around the reality uh, of the danger of COVID-19 because part of what we've seen across the continent, uh, I think in Nigeria, the, the, there was a phrase around, you know, you're threatened by hunger and you're threatened by COVID. Uh, which one, you know, would you take seriously? And some people, many have taken the threat of hunger seriously. I'd rather, uh, you know, die of COVID-19 than to die of hunger. And those rallies, in Burundi, in these countries that have insisted on having those kinds of public uh, gatherings, also demonstrated that people didn't think that COVID-19 was real. If it happens that people believe that the president's family is this sick from COVID-19, then they might begin uh, to come together to deal with what is an immediate, is a real and present threat uh, to the people of Burundi, to Africans, uh, to, to the whole world, uh, albeit uh, in varying degrees, as we discussed earlier. So it might well be that this particular unfortunate incident, as unfortunate as it is, might uh, bring people together around a national crisis in Burundi. Sorry, I wanted to add that. No, that's very helpful. And uh, Funmi, I want to come back in a few minutes to what you're talking about, this sort of balance between hunger and COVID-19, because I think that balance has been... Um, difficult to strike in a lot of uh, countries around Africa. But one thing when you're talking about, um, you know, we don't know, there are questions about how he died. Uh, it's, and Moses, you touched on this too, it's a fundamental question of trust uh, in the government and institutions in sort of results. Uh, and it's something that Wale got to at the beginning about um, whether we know the full picture of the pandemic on the continent based on the data. Um, and 
about whether some governments are massaging it, whether uh, there is enough testing. And I wonder maybe Wally, you can sort of expand on that a little bit. Uh, a few days ago, the health minister in Nigeria, in a particular state, uh, the second most popular state in Nigeria, in Kano State, in over the past uh, month, about 976 people have died uh, due to what is called mysterious circumstances. And the minister confirmed on national TV that at least 60% of these so-called mysterious deaths are linked to COVID-related symptoms. In fact, they conducted verbal autopsy, you know, uh, to back that up. So what you are saying is that, and those, they, you know, the, those deaths, those people that died are not part of the official data because they were not tested. If you are not tested and you die of COVID-related symptoms, you are not counted as part of the data. And you find evidence of, of that. Uh, before COVID, the healthcare system and national data collection capacity are quite limited across the continent. COVID has not made it any better. In fact, it has worsened it. So what you now find is the countries that tested the most have the most cases in Africa. South Africa has a about the highest. South Africa, Ghana, as well as Egypt, and to an extent Algeria, they have some of the highest cases of COVID cases in Africa because they are among you know the, the countries that tested the most. If you if you check the ratio of testing per thousand, as well as the ratio of testing, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Per population, you know, if you, if, you, if you factor that in on per capita basis, you will see that the countries that have the highest level of tests have the highest number of cases of COVID. So you only know COVID to the extent that people are tested. The more tests countries make, the more COVID uh, discovery they do. And of course, uh, there is a joke that was circulated around a few weeks ago. I think there was, uh, I think in Mauritania, one African country or Central African Republic that was congratulated for not having zero cases of COVID at the time. And the minister just said, because we've not tested anyone, so how can we have COVID cases? So countries only have COVID to the extent that, you know, they can test. And, you know, testing costs money. To buy the testing key, the testing reagent, is an additional burden on some of these countries whose economy, whose public expenditure is already... Uh, seriously uh, constrained because COVID came in on the back of collapsing commodity prices, be it oil, be it other exports coming out of Africa. So the countries are, you know, the worst end of things when it comes to the capacity and the financial resources to be able to test. But it's not just only uh, the issue of testing. We have seen in the case of Nigeria, you look at certain state governors who are suppressing and preventing take, testing from taking place, even when the federal government makes resources available for testing to be done, they don't want their state to be stigmatized for having COVID cases for a variety of reasons. And it's not just at the level of those state governors. You also see some African countries, you know, are also shying away from actually making effort to get the full picture, the full extent of COVID to be able to know uh, the best ways and to, for them to be able to tweak their response strategies. Of course, uh, if you look at the study, the initial assessment done after a month, which was uh, a month of COVID in Africa by the King's uh, Global Institute, it did talk about the need to watch Africa closely, to be able to see how the pattern, uh, how the, you know, how COVID evolves on, on the continent, what lessons, uh, to compare the evolution of COVID in Africa with other parts of the world, and to be able to quickly draw lessons about uh, COVID in Africa, so that uh, globally those working on, you know, uh, epidemiologists working on, on COVID can, can add to their knowledge of COVID uh, uh, as a pandemic in terms of how it manifests itself in other parts of Africa. But there is a lot more to be, you know, to be, to be known about COVID in Africa. What we currently know is not the full picture of COVID on the continent. I'll leave it at that. Great. And that, you, you know, uh, not fully understanding the full picture, um, 
it's hard to it's hard for policymakers to understand whether say locking down early which many people say was a was the right call and it may have slowed the the transmission even more um but now that as you said sort of cases seem to be picking up much faster now is the time when most of the lockdowns are being lifted in a lot of countries and that is because of what you were talking about for me that balance between the economy, uh, the economic needs of the people. And I wonder if you can talk a little more about that. Oh, no, indeed. Interestingly, even though that, you know, the, even though the, the lockdown is, begin, is beginning to ease, but there was no lockdown for many. And, and that was a point about, uh, uh, that I made earlier about COVID really, really uh, reinforcing the divides, the inequalities that had existed in society. Hundreds of thousands could not lock down because if they locked down, they would not be able to, to live at all. And that's the point about the, the choice between hunger, uh, dying of hunger or, or dying of COVID. And I, I, I think, uh, and it's obvious that many, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of young people chose not to lock down, chose to, you know, risk dying of COVID. Uh, rather than die of hunger. And as, as it's turned out, we know that many of these young people uh, are not necessarily sick from COVID. Those, the, the, you know, the, the small uh, numbers that we have in terms of data has not been about uh, many young people dying. It's about being over 50s who've been dying uh, of COVID. So they may be asymptomatic carriers. They're on the streets. And what that tells us is that we might be, uh, we should be expecting some kind of attrition. If uh, asymptomatic carriers uh, infect others and those others are vulnerable because of comorbidity, then you can begin to see even the population, this average age of uh, 19, 18 to 20 that Wally was talking about, um, might even reflect over time uh, that that might be the pattern for some time to come. It means that much older people who are vulnerable to COVID would just really leave the community over a period of time. And if we cannot even gather this evidence, except we're doing it anecdotally, uh, it means that Africa is going to experience um, many of the consequences of COVID-19 for, for some time to come. I, I still don't think that the exponential growth um, in, in, uh, in mortality that we've seen elsewhere will happen in that way in Africa because things are being mitigated by the age question. Uh, I think it's going to be very different. Um, it's going to throw up a, a different uh, set of, uh, of statistics over the next months or year. Great. Um, sorry, just to reinforce that, uh, because we have a, a, a module, a course on, on youth, youth and society in developing countries at the African Leadership Center. And one of the points that we've always emphasized is the youthening trend of, of the population in Africa. Of course, more often than not, this has been interpreted as a source of panic, a source of worry because of the tendency for young people to embrace, you know, violence or join armed militias or participate in armed conflict and join terrorist groups and the rest. But this is one occasion in which this particular population structure in Africa might just be the saving grace for the continent. I'll leave it at that. Okay, great. Um, so we're going to move to the uh, the Q and A um, portion of the uh, of the panel right now. Um, and the first question uh, is from Dennis Juko, who uh, says, "On elections, to to you, Moses, uh, do you see a difference in response patterns uh, that is enforcement of COVID nineteen regulations?" between countries that are due for elections either this year or the beginning of next year compared to those whose election dates are uh, far away from now? Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I think the responses in, across Africa have largely been cut and, and, and paste or copy and paste in terms of declaration of states of emergencies, lockdowns, and all that. And of course, there are certain contexts which also we have seen certain responses which are peculiar to those particular 
you know, context. But the response has largely been, um, been, been cut and paste. What uh, really has been happening, especially in terms of those countries expecting elections, has really been the debate about whether to proceed with elections or whether to uh, postpone or suspend elections. That has been the major debate. But we have also seen countries which are expecting elections to uh, going ahead with preparations for elections. But of course, we have seen disruptions in, in those particular uh, preparations for those particular elections. So the responses have largely really, uh, there's not much discernible difference between the countries which are holding elections and the countries which will hold elections uh, next year and in and, 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 and future. Uh, just to add to that, in the context of Ghana and Nigeria, there has been there is a raging debate because Ghana's election is due in December. So Ghana is having a major debate on what to do. Uh, and Nigeria too, because there are some state governorship elections that are due over the coming two to three months. Uh, Nigeria already has decided that facial mask, facial coverings is going to be a must for any intending voter for the governorship elections due. Uh, in, the, in the next two months, and that social distancing would have to be observed at polling booth. Of course, this raises questions uh, about the length of time that vote, you know, that voting is expected to take place. Typically, voting tends to take place over six to seven hours. So does it mean voting will have to take place over a longer period of time? How much can you keep people in line? It means voting procedures will be, will be slower, will take a longer time, uh, so people, elderly people, elderly voters will be expected to, to stay in line for a long period of time. It's going to have impact on, on vote, you know, voter turnout. Nigeria has also, the Electoral Commission made a statement last week that they are now going to work on um, online voting mechanism, digital voting mechanism for the next national presidential election in 2023 solely because of COVID. Okay, great. Um, great. And the, let's see, the next question is from David at Kings. Um, and uh, he says, uh, we had beforehand a lot of Western media predicting a disaster in Africa. And so this is a question for all the panelists. Do you think that this reflects the way in which the, you know, Europe and the U.S. continue to repeat outdated narratives about Africa, particularly in light of the Black Lives Matters movement? Can I uh, can I try? Uh, I, I think that's a very uh, that's a really good question actually. But there there are two sides to it. It is true that this assumption is made in any case. Um, Western narratives are taken as global narratives. They're taking they they just assumed to be global. So whatever it is, um, we make those assumptions about every other part of the world on the basis of what we've decided, what we have decided is a given uh, in Europe and North America. That's been the case here. But the second side of it is African governments themselves accept those things as a given. And that's why you find um, that divergence I was talking about earlier. Why would we have taken exactly the same lockdown approaches for countries where we know that in Nigeria, for example, the informal economy is almost, that's the engine room of the society. It's not just Nigeria, across the continent. And those who work in the informal economy uh, do not, they earn, if you, don't, if you don't work, you can't eat, essentially. You eke out your living on the streets. Why would you want to lock them down? Um, and of course, so we just took the formula and applied it directly. Uh, as it was given uh, based on the experiences of uh, Europe uh, uh, and, and North America and Latin America to uh, impact. So, so I think that's a very important point to be made, that there's an intellectual laziness uh, that comes from just taking uh, as a given rules. It's like received wisdom. You receive that wisdom and you don't challenge it. And those populations that I'm talking about that are beginning to demonstrate leadership of a different kind are devising instruments, both in terms of their own approaches, but also in terms of physical instruments to deal with their own challenges, because there's nothing that has come from abroad that is able to solve those problems for them. So we're seeing some innovations in education 
uh, as a result of that, uh, where again, China uh, seems to be cashing in on quite a bit of that. When people realize that they need uh, to reach large populations who may not be connected uh, through technology in the way through uh, the kind of uh, internet systems that we're speaking from now, they manufacture things that the citizens can use. Sometimes they use radio. So the radio becomes very pop is very popular in some places. That kind of creativity, that kind of innovation, which societies in Africa need more than anything, uh, is be beginning to become the order of the day. But that gives you two parallels. Uh, decide by governments, with very few exceptions, and decide by the people. And governments have to make a decision as to whether they are going to hold on at all costs uh, to Western ways of doing things that are unquestioned. I'm not saying they're always wrong, but you have to test them for your society uh, in the first instance. And unless that happens from within Africa, we will continue to see the same Western narratives. So, so I, I, I want to suggest as far as Africa is concerned, there's a massive amount of innovation going on that if governments align themselves with, might begin to change the narratives that we see in the West. Until that happens, we're going to be seeing this same uh, ideas uh, and formulaic things that are handed down. Uh, and I think the, 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 black, uh, the black Lives Matter mov uh, uh, movement is beginning to really raise a lot of questions about how we have treated difference, even in our own communities um, across Europe and North America. This is, a, this is quite a moment. It's a moment uh, where I think if we have the right kinds of conversations, the right kinds of debate, we might actually begin to see a path towards uh, change. Uh, just to uh, jump in on what Tomia said, um, I've questioned the data. You have put up uh, a few posers in, and challenging us that we need to go beyond the existing data to understand the reality of COVID in Africa. But beyond that, I think even myself, we also concede that at this moment in time, I don't know what will happen in the weeks or months ahead, the trajectory of COVID in Africa has followed a different pattern from what you've had in Europe. In Europe, over the cost of, I mean, Africa is in its third month of COVID. The first cases were reported late February, early March in many countries. So Africa is affecting the third month. And even if the data is not telling us the full story, I also concede that Africa is not where Europe was or is after two or three months of COVID. A big thank you to our webinars chair, Neil Munchi, and to our panellists, Professor Funmi Alanasarkin, Dr. Alawale Ismail, and Dr. Moses Tofer. To find out more about the African Leadership Centre, head to kcl.ac.uk forward slash Africa. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this. <laughs>